Simple Beep, episode 45, Mice. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And we usually skate right past follow-up at the beginning of our shows, trying to get to the meaty topic that we have for the rest of the show. But this week, we have a ton of follow-up. And this is all coming from our past episode, last episode, which was on portability of Apple products. And the first piece of follow-up we put in there ourselves, because at the end of the show, we did a little segment on not just things that were designed to be portable, like notebook computers, smartphones, and the like, but other Apple products that were more or less portable and had handles. And we thought we had put together an entire list, complete list of all of these things. And then we had stopped recording the show and not even yet hung up the Skype call. And I went, wait a minute, didn't the G4 Cube have a handle? And when I was preparing the list, I hadn't put it on there because I had done my due diligence of looking for pictures of the G4 Cube. And I looked at it and I went, there's no handle on that thing. Well, if I had really done my due diligence, I would have searched for Google image search for G4 Cube handle, which will bring up literally dozens of pictures of the fact that the G4 Cube does have a handle. It's on the bottom. And in fact, this was the way that you could get to all of the various serviceable components of the machine. So we'll link to an article that Chris Finn did for Macworld uh, that has some really good demo pictures and videos of this. And so you would flip the entire machine upside down still doesn't quite look like there's a handle, but there's this metal bar across the bottom, and you push on it, and it clicks in and pops out in this really smooth, pleasing motion, like very Johnny Ive. And then you can extract the entire computer, the guts of the computer, out of the plastic shell that goes around the top. And then you could get to various things like hard drive, RAM, etc. cetera. Uh, so not really a carrying handle, I guess. I suppose you could. Um, but... It was definitely a device that was small and compact and had a handle, and we missed it. On the other side of that, uh, there are no currently shipping Macs with handles on them, but uh, there are probably many accessories to add handles onto your Mac if you so desire. And we're going to highlight one. This just randomly came across my Twitter feed in the past couple of weeks, but I thought it was too good to pass up, especially because I think I joked on the show, oh, like, you know, I've got this fancy new iMac and it's made of portable class products, things that we used to think of being so small that they would only go in portable devices. And I said, but it would be kind of unwieldy for me to actually like pick it up and carry it around. Well, there's a product just for someone who has that need. Yes, the, the tweet you're talking about uh, is coming from Twitter user Alex Vanderzon, which we will link in the show notes. And his commentary on the image of this product is simply, I've had enough internet today. Yeah, and it's got a couple pictures. And one of them is this guy carrying this very nice like leather and suede or felt bag. It looks like a giant purse. And then you realize that the foot of an iMac is sticking out of it. <laughs> and I thought... Did he just like see this guy on the street and and capture this image and post it to Twitter? Uh, and Brian, you did a little bit of digging and found, no, no, that's not the case at all. This is a real product made by a company called LaVolta, and they're selling it on Amazon. So if you have $85.49 burning a hole in your pocket and a 27-inch Apple 
uh, iMac or Thunderbolt display that you'd like to carry around <laughs> as if it were like a messenger bag or a shoulder bag, well, you can put some attractive felt and leather protective casing and handles around it and just carry it around with you. This is a truly absurd Apple accessory, and I love it. And it turns out that the photos that were posted in that tweet that we found are like official product photos. It's completely absurd with the foot. Yeah. Right? And I mean, that's the thing where you look at it and you scoff and you go, this is not a portable product. Uh, but I know that some people have the, like, it's a build-to-order option when you get the iMac that you can get the visa mount uh, to put it on an arm. And if you had that, I don't think those are like easy to exchange, though. But maybe if you had just a little extra piece on that that was like a quick mount, then this would actually be a practical product. But for the vast majority of us who buy their iMacs with feet, uh, they are not portable, and this product is dumb. <laughs> Moving on to other silly things that came across our Twitter feed. Silly and amazing. Uh, this one uh, was also in response to last episode where we talked about the Macintosh Portable, which was Apple's first real foray into portable computing after the Apple IIc. And... Uh, we got this fantastic picture back, and I thought it was like a Photoshop job or something at first. Um, and this is from Patrick Blampede. Sorry if I butchered your name, Patrick. But Patrick, you have an amazing computing device, which you say is a Macintosh portable running iOS. And I thought, what on earth is this? And what he's done is a hilariously great case mod where he's taken... I think it's an iPad mini to get the screen size right, which is also an indication of you know how the Macintosh portable was as a device. He's taken an iPad mini and the camera connection kit out to USB, out to ADB, and hardwired that into the keyboard of the Macintosh portable, an actual original Macintosh portable. He's taken out some of the other guts. He's taken out the lead-acid battery which people were joking about that it weighed nine pounds. And I'm like, well, the whole thing weighed 16 pounds. It's unlikely that the battery was more than half of that. So I, I looked it up and it was about two pounds. But still, that's heavier than some portable computers that Apple sells today. But what he has here is actually a functioning iPad in the Macintosh portable case and wired up to its keyboard. And why, why on earth would you do that? You've ruined a perfectly good iPad. Unless you're the kind of very picky writer who loves a particular type of keyboard. And there was some conversation that went back and forth here. Um, John Gruber got wrapped up in the conversation. We were in on the conversation. So if anyone who follows Gruber is now listening for the first time, hello. <laughs> um, but it turns out that the reason that Patrick did this is that the key switches in the Macintosh portable are the exact same key switches that are in the Apple Extended Keyboard 2, which is Gruber's favorite keyboard, many people's favorite mechanical keyboard for the feel that it has. And so this is kind of the Apple non-extended keyboard 2 in that sense, and it's all wrapped up in this single package, and it works. The, the thing actually works. Uh, so we'll post a link to the photo that he sent us uh, via Twitter, and also a little video that he's done on the creation of... I would have to say one of the best Franken-Apple products that I've ever seen. So kudos, Patrick. And one final item of follow-up that's more of a correction. We just recently mentioned the 
lead acid battery in the original Macintosh portable. And when I was discussing the PowerBook 100 in our previous episode, I said that one of the ways that it, it was able to get smaller and more light was that it didn't have a lead acid battery, but in fact it did. It just had a smaller, lower capacity lead acid battery. It also had some small traditional like nickel cadmium batteries that were used purely to preserve the contents of RAM when you would, for example, swap the main PowerBooks battery. And uh, I came to this correctional knowledge through Wikipedia, but the source was appropriately cited on that Wikipedia page, which went straight to a, a backup copy of the PowerBook 100's developer note, which is available on the Internet Archive. And uh, you can see for yourself on page three of chapter one that indeed the PowerBook 100 has a lead acid battery. So now let's move on to our topic for this episode. And one of the things that got us thinking about this was also looking at some of what we saw for last episode dealing with portability, because part of packing a Mac down into a portable form factor is getting all of the I.O. into that form factor. And one of the things with that Macintosh portable is that it had that big giant trackball that was included in the case. And then, of course, the original PowerBooks also had small little trackballs included. And we thought, you know, we've been kicking around the topic of covering Apple's mice for a while, and so that's what we're going to deal with today. Longtime listeners of our show may recall our sixth episode where we did a similar retrospective on all of Apple's keyboards. Uh, so if you did not hear that in the original uh, broadcast and release, we'll put a link to that in our show notes. And we would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge friend of the show, Stephen Hackett, who put together a comprehensive article on his site, 512 Pixels, about the history of the Apple Mouse. So again, all of these links will be in our show notes to accompany the audio discussion we have here. Yeah. And, uh, you know, please do go back and listen to those early episodes, although know that they might be a little bit rough. I mean, <laughs> we've got that whole episodes catalog on our website, simplebeep.com slash episodes. Uh, and I listened to part of episode one recently, and uh, we were still learning. Yeah. But we, we continue to improve. One of the other things that's fun about uh, the keyboards episode is that I was looking back through our outline document for that just to see what we covered. And at the end of it, we were talking about the MacBook the, the Retina MacBooks keyboard, and it was all in terms of the rumors and the nine to five article that had that had leaked what the keyboard was going to be like because it did not exist yet at the time, which indicates just how long the show has been running. Yeah, nice little milestone for us. But yes, for now, let's get into the various mice that uh, both inspired Apple and were released by Apple. Um, starting in the, the early days of the computer mouse itself. Yeah, so I wanted to go back and just figure out where exactly the mouse started, because I think that as Apple followers, we kind of think, oh, well, the Mac was, it, it had the first mouse, and that was it, and the mouse has existed ever since. But that's a pretty gross oversimplification of it. And we started thinking about these other track, uh, these other pointing devices as well. So... I went back and looked, and we were looking at mice, trackballs, all of these different things. And so it turns out that trackballs were actually one of the first two-dimensional pointing devices for computers, and they go way, way back. So the first, I guess, computer trackball, probably not a digital trackball, probably completely analog, 
But the first trackball input device was invented in 1941 in Britain, and it was during World War II. And it was a pointing device for a World War II-era radar system for manipulating the system. And it turns out that this device was then later patented in 1947. This is, of course, according to Wikipedia, which is never wrong. But only a prototype using a metal ball rolling on two rubber-coated wheels was ever built, and the device was kept as a military secret. This was how important this ability to point at things in two dimensions on a computer was at that time. Uh, so pretty amazing. <laughs> then to get to the actual computer mouse itself, this is getting into territory that I knew existed but didn't really have at tip of my tongue. So the person who's credited with inventing the mouse, the very first computer mouse, is Doug Engelbart. And this happened in the 1960s. And uh, this was used in various demo PCs. And uh, there was a three-button version that was used in the famous Mother of All Demos, which is, I think it's available on YouTube. It's this like hour-long demonstration of what basically personal computing technology could be all, all done in prototypes. And I think that was coming out of Xerox PARC. Um, another thing that came out of Xerox PARC, which used and loved the mouse and was, of course, where the idea of the mouse then eventually transferred over to people who were working at Apple, uh, one of the things there was the development of the Xerox Alto, which uh, we covered on the Triumph of the Nerds episodes. This was the very early... PC designed for desktop personal use uh, in 1973, and that was the one that had the portrait orientation monitor because it was designed to give you an exact um, an exact layout of a piece of paper. So more used for like desktop publishing, print work, and because you were doing lots of two dimensional work, a mouse was a suitable pointing device that you probably needed to get your work done efficiently as opposed to just text input and output on other similar computers of the time. And as we've also covered in our own Triumph of the Nerds episodes, and as is pretty well known in Apple lore, uh, Steve Jobs visited Xerox Park and was inspired by the things he saw there. So it's time for us to move into the first mouse Apple released uh, on its own. But this isn't a mouse that came out with the original Macintosh. This is actually the mouse that came with the Lisa. The mouse that was included with that machine was pretty similar to the mouse that would eventually be released with Macintosh and the computer that made it and its uh, user interface paradigm famous. Uh, there are a couple small differences. Uh, for example, the one mouse button at the top of the device was a little smaller, a little shorter, uh, thinner vertically. Um, the mouse ball on the inside was actually uh, solid steel with the Lisa. I guess that's going back to that design that was part of the original trackball. They figured that, I don't know, maybe that was the easiest type of ball to that you could machine that would be uh, perfectly round and still relatively inexpensive to manufacture. And yeah, the mouse itself was very, very boxy and even more boxy than the original Macintosh mouse, which by today's standards is a walloping brick. Yeah. Uh, but that's not to say that it was without design. So, like the Lisa itself, if you look at the Lisa, it's a very heavily designed computer. 
And so the mouse is not just a the cheapest rectangle that you can make out of plastic and stick a button and a ball in. So there are some nice little details. There's this little asymmetric, like little racing stripe down the side that comes down from the button. So there's kind of two panes almost on the top of the mouse, even though this is all in beige on beige. And a feature that would persist through all of Apple's mouse devices is that it features an Apple logo. So in the bottom left corner, there's a very small embossed Apple logo. And I don't know if this was just pure branding, but it may also have served some function, as I've lamented uh, that people don't know how to use mice anymore. <laughs> um, and we talked about recently in the our help episode that people needed some instruction for using a mouse. Well, here is a nice subtle cue for how to begin using your mouse is that it has an Apple logo on it and you know which way is up on the Apple logo. So you're going to face your mouse on your desk so that the Apple logo is pointing in the correct orientation. And so I don't know if that was part of the design, but I like to think that that's a nice subtle cue also for how the mouse was designed and how the mouse could be then more familiar to people who are using it for the first time. The Lisa mouse connected to the main Lisa machine with a DE9 cable. Uh, this is a cable that has a bunch of pins in it and the kind of like a VGA-shaped trapezoid uh, protective shield around it. Yeah, one of these very, very PC-looking serial-type connectors. And just one year later, Apple released the Macintosh, which, of course, had a mouse to help you navigate through its graphical user interface. Uh, there were a couple small changes, but overall, the mouse was pretty similar to what shipped with the Lisa. It had also a DE9 cable. We weren't yet to the Apple desktop bus. There is a nice Apple logo embossed in the lower left of the mouse, if you're looking at it and it's oriented correctly. Uh, but the single button at the top of the mouse became a little larger, maybe a little easier for people new to such a device to have a, a, a larger click target. It also has this little bevel along the top. So I think that the the mouse itself has become a little sleeker, just, you know, like 10, 10% sleeker. Uh, it's it's hard to call this design objectively sleek. That'll take uh, a couple more decades to get to that, or at least one more decade to get to something that you could call sleek. But the the button itself is not just flat plastic. It has a bend in the plastic that kind of mimics how you know the first knuckle of your finger would reach up and over it. So it's already beginning to have this human design elements to the mouse. We're still not quite to the traditional Apple desktop mice that uh, most people who are familiar with the classic Mac will know. We've got one more revision, which is the simply named Apple Mouse, also released in 1984, a couple months after the Macintosh release. This was part of that big wave of pushing technologies that grew up in the Lisa and then achieved popularity with the Macintosh back down into the Apple II lineup. So the first of these was the Apple Mouse 2C. There was also an Apple Mouse 2E, and they look they look largely similar to the Macintosh mouse, although one thing that's different is that they are now to a single color design, monochromatic. They don't have the button called out in a darker color of plastic. I guess 
in one sense, people are getting more familiar with the notion of a mouse and you don't have to say, hello, this is a button. Um, and it probably also saved on manufacturing costs if they didn't have to have two different types of plastic. But it's interesting that the mouse seemed to be a general enough computing paradigm that Apple wanted it to go into all of their products, especially into older products, which is something that we think of Apple characteristically not doing. It's like, leave the past behind, uh, as some of their later mice and later products, uh, especially in the nine, late 90s and beyond, make, make us think that way. But there was definitely this will to keep the Apple II line relevant and going alongside the Macintosh, and it did for many, many years. Uh, but it's interesting to think of, I never personally used an Apple II with a mouse, even though that I know that there were some 2Cs and 2GSs, which even had that like weird compatibility GUI layer uh, kicking around in the computer labs that I grew up in, in school. But I, I don't even really quite know what that would be like. To me, the, the mouse experience is moving around that little black pointer on a Mac. It's also worth pointing out, though, you know, okay, so the Mac made the mouse popular and the Mac made the mouse necessary because you can't navigate the Macintosh system software or the Lisa system software, for that matter, without a mouse. I mean, you can in some limited capacity. Uh, it was always a challenge, especially in the classic Mac, to really get anything done with just the keyboard, like maybe your mouse came unplugged or wasn't working or something, and you wanted to like shut down your computer, good luck. Uh, and of course, there are things today that get around that, especially if you have accessibility needs. But fundamentally, the Mac and all of its software is mouse-based at some point. But going on at the same time, and actually around the time that the Lisa mouse came out, and a little bit predating the Mac... It turns out that Microsoft was also developing mice and building their own hardware, which is kind of fascinating. And so Microsoft actually built in mouse support for a version of Microsoft Word running on DOS in 1983. But it was just, it, it was kind of a feature, not a whole platform. And so the mouse on the non-Apple PC side of things didn't really kick off until Windows and the popularity of Windows with you know, Windows 3.1, Windows 95, much later on. So I think that's why we think of at least the early use of mice as kind of a distinctly Apple thing, because they had been around in the world for decades before. They were even in competitors' hands at the same time, but the level of use was so much greater on the Mac. And so in between these initial mice models and the kind of explosive popularity of the mouse when it comes over to the Windows and DOS side, Apple revamped their mouse to a model that is familiar to a lot of us still today. Yes. So this is the introduction of the Apple desktop bus. And this was Apple's proprietary serial bus that was used for their keyboards and mice. And along with that, big hardware revision came a big hardware revision to their signature input device. And this is the Apple desktop bus mouse. So this actually came along pretty quickly. So the first one was released in 1986. So it has this new port and new design. It's definitely less of a squared off brick. So it has this 
very distinctive, I guess what, it's a pentagonal shape because it's got the flat base and then it goes up on the two sides and then it has one single bend in the top. Kind of like a peak. Yeah, it's like a little mountain peak. Again, trying to have some human design, trying to mimic the shape of the hand and be somewhat ergonomic. So this is basically where your palm would naturally fold over onto the mouse. Of course, it has the one-button design. Uh, it, you know, it wasn't a limitation that Apple had a one-button mouse. Like I said, back in the what, mother of all demos, 60s, they were using a three-button mouse. And so some people who were like power users or uh, people who were building their own computers earlier on thought, well, gee, you know, have multiple buttons on this, hit them with all your fingers, I'll be maximally useful. But you can see through all of these Apple mouse designs is that one of the features of having a one-button mouse is that it's completely ambidextrous. So whether you're left or right-handed, you can use the mouse and its function for you is going to be exactly the same. So I think that was part of the design here. And uh, even on some of those early ADB keyboards, if you were daisy-chaining the mouse into the keyboard and then to the back of the computer, which was the preferred way of doing it, unlike PCs where you plug them both directly into the tower, <laughs> it gave you daisy chain ports on both the left and right-hand side of the keyboard. So there was definitely this design to be useful for with both the left and the right hand by making it symmetrical, single-button, clean design. And yeah, this is the mouse that probably was sitting next to most of the Macs that I knew growing up. Yeah, this was the mouse that we had with our Macintosh 2 in the house that I used in all my formative computing years. Uh, and I, looking at this now, um, we, we talked about this peak that helps with the ergonomics of your, your hand and your palm. Relatively speaking. Relatively, of course, for the time. The peak on the ADB mouse kind of crests at where your palm will rest when you're holding the mouse in its uh, meant orientation, in the orientation it's meant to be held in. Uh, but the previous mice, the Lisa mouse, the Macintosh mouse, kind of had the peak up by the button. And uh, knowing what I know now about uh, ergonomics with computers and mice and keyboards, like, that's terrible. <laughs> you're, you're having your wrists kind of like always, uh, your wrist joint on the table and your hands kind of propped upwards. Really bad for <laughs> potential RSI. Yeah, maybe I was just a more flexible kid. Now my tendons are becoming old and decrepit. Uh, but I always found that the Apple desktop butt's mouse was really quite easy to use, and even more so was its immediate successor, the Apple desktop bus mouse 2. Yes. So the Apple desktop bus mouse 2 was actually the first Apple mouse that was ever in my family's home because it was released in 1993, and we got our first Mac was one of the original Power Macs in 1994. So this was standard config in the box with our Apple Extended Keyboard 2, which is awesome. And still here. The mouse is not here anymore. <laughs> <laughs> because it was good, but not great. And the thing that was totally new about this mouse, though, was that it went away from angular design at all. So it's now a completely smooth rounded, molded piece of plastic. And to be honest, it looks the most of any of these like an actual mouse, I think. 
just in terms of the overall shape of what it looks like and the proportions. One of the things that's interesting here is even more symmetry in the design. So going away from the Lisa with its stripe down one side, going away from even these other earlier ADB mices with uh, Apple logo embossed over to one side, the Apple logo is now dead center at the peak of no longer like an angular mountain, but a smoothly sloping hill. And the button is starting to become less of a button because instead of a rectangle that is clearly marked out that you press down on, there's just a single line that separates the top portion of the mouse from the bottom portion of the mouse. And the top portion is the button. And a couple other interesting tidbits about the ADB mouse too. Uh, it had a really delightful code name. So this, the ADB mouse two was codenamed Topo Gigio, which, uh, if you don't know, uh, who Topo Gigio is, well, <clears throat> secondo Wikipedia, che non mai sbaglia, Topo Gigio è un pupazzo animato e raffigurante un topo antropomorfo creato in Italia per la televisione nel 1959 da Maria Perego. So yes, uh, Topo Gigio is a, is a mouse puppet <laughs> who, if you're an American, may, you may know from appearances on the Ed Sullivan show. But if you're an American of our generation, you might have missed that entirely. Uh, but yes, he's an Italian mouse puppet. And he's kind of he's kind of round and and friendly, and so I think it's an appropriate name for our our little friend here, the the ADB Mouse Two. The ADB Mouse Two kind of uh, rounded out Apple's Snow White era of design. Where, oh yes, definitely. Because uh, well, we'll get to the mouse that came after it in just a minute. Uh, so it it mostly shipped in the kind of platinum, not quite beige color that all of Apple's desktop machines, uh, not their portable machines, except for the Macintosh portable, were colored in. A nice clean color until they sat in the sun and turned into all, all manner of strange orange and browns. But there was one color variant of the ADB Mouse 2. It came in matte black. Oh yes, but there was only one place that you were going to get that accessory. And it was in the box with the one black desktop Macintosh, one of the worst Macs of all time, the Macintosh TV. A kind of all-in-one LC slash Performa with the TV tuner in it that the, the entire machine came in matte black. Ooh, it was bad. <laughs> there was a recent segment on Connected because Stephen Hackett just got one of these things. And uh, he explains all the ways that the Macintosh TV was bad. Uh, it looked great on the outside while it was off, and it came with a sweet black keyboard and mouse, but that was that was where the fun stopped. We'll link that up in the show notes. So that's all we have to say about the, the Apple desktop bus and original mice, which means we're moving into the more modern era of mice that if they have a cable, it's USB, but uh, more frequently, they don't have a cable at all. And the first of these mice was Apple's first USB mouse. Oh boy. <laughs> referred to not lovingly as the hockey puck. This uh, shipped with the original Apple iMac G3, which we have dedicated an entire episode to and did go into this mouse a little bit there as well. Uh, but for those of you who are 
just tuning in here and did not have the distinct pleasure of using one of these mice. It was Apple's first commercially released mouse to use the USB connection instead of ADB. And there's this quote we have pasted here. <laughs> this is this is from Wikipedia, which is never wrong. <laughs> and it even has it, it, this doesn't even have a citation needed. It just says <laughs> it is widely considered one of Apple's worst mistakes. Yeah, from a practicality standpoint. Yes. Well, I mean, you know, the Macintosh TV was pretty bad in the whole Performa line. And, but from a practicality and usability standpoint, the Puck Mouse basically broke down all of these advancements that they were making in making a mouse actually easier to use and, and just threw them away. So we've seen this refinement from a straightforward thick brick with a button on one end to something that really fits nicely in your hand and makes it obvious where the button is, so obvious that it doesn't even really have to be shown to you. And then you're handed this thing. It is so round, in fact, as part of a progression of getting rounder and rounder, that the mouse itself is a perfect circle, uh, constructed out of translucent plastic. The majority of the body was clear and translucent with uh, some side embellishments in the color of the iMac that it shipped with. And uh, there, you know, like, so this is a mouse that's way more about form than it is about function. It's certainly the Apple mouse that has the most variance because it came in what all of the different colors up through the, the candy color phase. So what six different colors because original Bondi and the five yum flavor IMAX all had puck mouses with them. And the mouse's translucency allowed Apple to play some fun tricks. Uh, some that made it through to the shipping version, like uh, its rollerball was two-tone. One hemisphere was white, one hemisphere was basically black, so you could actually see the ball rolling around as you used the mouse. It's proof that it's working. <laughs> and we also covered in our iMac G3 episode that there were some there was another thing planned and even referred to in their product marketing video that there was going to be a little LED soldered onto the inside of the mouse so that when the mouse was in use, uh, it would light up and you know shine through the translucent plastic. But this did not make it into the shipping version of the mouse. So is this a good place to have a little sidebar, especially for our younger listeners who don't remember mouse balls? Yeah. And the fact that this was Apple's last mouse that had that used the rollerball analog method of figuring out how you were moving it around the desk. And so, yes, if, if you've never experienced one of these, children gather around. <laughs> uh, mice were essentially trackballs that were turned upside down and you smashed them around on a table, and that was how they worked <laughs> for many, many years. And so there's, there's the ball, it rolls as you drag the mouse around on the table, Inside the guts of the mouse, then, are two small rollers, an x-axis roller and a y-axis roller. And so if you roll the mouse straight up and down, only one of those spins and the other one stays basically still. Uh, you know, if you do it side to side, reverse that. And then if you go in any kind of diagonal or in-between motion, the ratio of how fast uh, each of those is spinning translates into motion on the screen. Here's the problem, though. <laughs> That's like a really complex mechanism that you roll around on a cloth pad on a table to get the best experience. And as we learned in the keyboard episode, like especially when we got to those Apple Pro keyboards, 
people are filthy animals <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and get all kinds of crumbs and garbage on their computers. And even if you were being super careful with your rollerball mouse, it was going to, just like everything else in your house, you know, stuff picks up dust, stuff picks up lint. And uh, after that original Lisa mouse that had the steel ball, all of these afterwards were, you know, they were about the size of a large marble and you could pop them out. And that was part of the design. It was necessary to the design. But they had kind of a rubbery, tacky coating on them. Like, you could tell that there was a metal core in there to give them some, like, inertia. But they had this little rubbery, tacky coating, and they would gather up stuff and get it up inside the mouse. And you'd have to go in there with, like, a Q-tip or a toothpick or something and periodically clean out the stuff because you would notice you'd be moving your mouse around it wouldn't be responding properly. So... You would have to actually go in there and physically clean out your mouse. Uh, this, of course, led to all kinds of terrible pranks with school computers, where uh, you know it's a feature that you're able to remove the mouse ball and clean it, but people would just like go through an entire lab of computers and just steal all the mouse balls, and then like, oh, can't use any of these computers because pretty much need a mouse to do anything. Uh, it was a simpler time. <laughs> We are recording this in August of 2016. For the future historians. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and occasionally I will uh, go help um, someone in the elderly community near where I live uh, with their computer problems as part of like a, a night job, a side gig. Uh, and very recently, like within the past couple of months, someone called me because their mouse had stopped working. And it was this. Like in 2016... Uh, a very kind old lady was using a rollerball mouse with like her ancient Dell tower and her mouse had stopped working because the two rollers on the inside had gotten gunked up with dust and, and a couple of hairs. So this is a skill. This is a skill that is still <laughs> making me money. Oh man. That's, I mean, especially because a, like you can buy an optical mouse for a dollar now. Yep. New. Like yep. <laughs> uh, it was revolutionary technology at the time. And uh, the time for that for Apple was the year 2000. So we're moving, moving into the third millennium, and that meant that Apple was going to release its very first optical mouse. And uh, this was the Apple Pro mouse, and it was Pro because it was optical as opposed to the old-fashioned rollerball tracking, and it was Pro because you could actually point the cursor with it. <laughs> this mouse has been given all kinds of snarky names being the direct successor to the USB puck mouse and Apple's second USB device mouse. And so I think one of my favorites, I don't know if this originated with John Syracuse, but I've certainly heard it the most from him is that he calls it the apology mouse. <laughs> this stems from the fact that the mouse was actually literally given away for free to all of the attendees of Macworld Expo 2000 when they announced it because they knew that they all had iMacs at home that were with the old mouse that everyone had been complaining about for a couple of years. But beyond that, there were a lot of interesting pro design changes to the pointing device that you know, we're we're going to speed through some of the most recent devices, but these were trends that persisted into devices that we use today and and really, you know, put the put the round USB mouse aside as a as a one-off, as a novelty to go with the iMac, the original iMac. But 
the Pro Mouse really has shaped what we think of as an Apple Mouse since then. And I think the most important thing, aside from the optical tracking, which is now, like I said, industry standard, comes from China for you know 10 cents worth of parts. Uh, buy one on Amazon for literally a couple of bucks, and it'll do you just fine, and you can plug it in, and your Mac will recognize it as generic USB mouse, and you're off to the races. Uh, but the thing that was new about the Apple Pro Mouse is its top surface, which has a zero-button design. People have been wondering for years, years, especially in the height of the Mac versus PC wars, oh, our computers are better. They have two buttons in, on the mouse instead of one. Ah, ha, ha. And so people were wondering, when is Apple going to release a two-button mouse? And at this point in 2000, I, I think it was in you know OS 8, 8.5, brought contextual menus to the Finder and to many other aspects of the operating system. And it's like, guys, guys, Windows has figured this out. You use a, a left click, you use a secondary mouse button for your contextual menus. And Apple's like, no, no, you will hold the control key and click and you will get a contextual menu. So everyone was expecting a two-button mouse to be the big upgrade from the Puck mouse. But instead, it's the zero-button design. And it's a really cool design. I mean, it still looks good. So it's got a black core that actually houses all of the components. And then this clear plastic outside layer that appears to be basically floating over top of it. And it totally fit in with the other design aesthetic of the time, like with the monitors that Apple was producing at that time, some of the third-party accessories that they were pushing at that time, like, uh, what was it, that Herman Carden uh, subwoofer, the jellyfish thing? Or even the G4 Cube itself, which we referred to earlier, which was a an internal core suspended in larger clear acrylic. And so it was a really sleek-looking device. It was definitely more effective than the previous one. But it was this zero-button design. So the way that it works is that basically the entire top of the mouse, instead of having a button that pushes directly down, the entire top hinges a little bit and and pushes down into the base. And this was, of course, great fun. This combined with the fact that it was optical tracking meant that you could, you know, use the mouse upside down on the bottom of your desk, uh, which was a total novelty because, or, you know, on your leg, um, which was just totally not possible with a rollerball mouse with any kind of any kind of accuracy. So it was a big, big step forward. One of the mousing techniques that uh, is pretty commonplace to anyone who uses one and was specifically called out in Apple's mouse practices app that we referred to in our help episode is what do you do if like you're dragging, so you can't let go of the mouse, uh, but you've like run out of space on your desk or you need to, you know, reposition the mouse in order to give your, your cursor more room to keep traveling. You got to pick it up in some way and, uh, and move it on your desk. The pro mouse, if the entire surface is a button uh, and, and you like, you know, change your pressure so that you can not only like manipulate the mouse in two dimensions, but also pick it up in the third dimension. How are you going to do that? If the entire thing is a button, they carved out two little squeeze points <laughs> on the bottom, uh, one on the left, one on the right that you could use like your thumb and ring finger to kind of put pressure on the sides of the mouse. So you could lift it up and uh, those will come into play in just a little bit. Oh, yeah. But the, at that point, it was pretty much just to be 
so that you actually were, you know, like putting compression and keeping the button down. Yeah. Yeah, I hadn't I hadn't thought of that. And I mean that's another thing of the transition from rollerball to to optical. It's like obviously if you're just <laughs> if the whole purpose is to roll the ball on the bottom of the thing and you're waving it in the air or picking it up and moving it, you know, from one side to the other, there's no input. But if it's optical, there can be input, especially if it's very close still to the surface. Um and I think you also have here that you know it used laser tracking. And I don't think I think the term laser mouse existed for a while in common parlance around this time. It's like, oh, you got a laser mouse. And uh they would shine these giant bright red lights out the bottom that looked like, you know, stereotypical lasers, pew pew. <laughs> um and like you're like, oh, don't turn your mouse upside down, like look in the laser, it'll blind you. And this was kind of, as I recall, how the Apple Pro mouse was. It had a red red laser that it used for optical tracking. Since then, optical tracking has improved greatly, and I don't think anybody thinks of the bottom of their mouse emanating bright light anymore because they just don't. They have um, different types of photosensors. They don't have to actually, as far as I understand, the way that laser mice worked is that they were actually sending out that laser at a particular frequency so that it could know so that it could determine the distance that the mouse moved relative to fractions of a second that it knew exactly because of the frequency of the laser. Whereas now we just have more advanced photo sensors that I'm not exactly sure how they work, but don't require this extra source of light shining down on the surface to make sure that it's properly illuminated at the right brightness and frequency and everything just to get your mouse cursor to work. The laser tracking as it relates specifically to this model of the Apple mouse actually comes from the the second revision of this zero button Apple pro mouse, uh, which came out in 2003 with some improvements. Apple, I think used the word laser in their marketing for this one, but I'm pretty sure it was still not a laser that would like blind you or be illegal. If you like pointed it at an airplane, it may have even changed uh, color from red to green. I'm not sure. Uh, but another thing that happened is that the as Apple's uh, main hardware, the desktop and laptop machines, were migrating away from like lots of clear plastic and colors to more subdued uh, solid plastics in 2003, the Apple Pro Mouse similarly became like one solid opaque color, not like the kind of internal core with a clear plastic shell, and uh, otherwise was basically unchanged. The second revision, however, also came with a Bluetooth model, Apple's first wireless mouse. Yeah, so it looked exactly the same, except that it lacked the tail that <laughs> makes these things all mice in the first place. Uh, again, future historians will look back and go, why on earth did they call them mice? <laughs> yeah. There's a couple more iterations of Apple mice to get us up to the present day. The next one is one of the most interesting product names in Apple history. And I remember when it dropped and everyone went, really? Because it was here to save the day, Mighty Mouse. Here I come to save the day. The Mighty Mouse was released in 2005. And my immediate thought was, are they allowed to call it that? And so, of course, there's a backstory that... It's not really a backstory because it spanned the entire life cycle of the product, which went for about four years. So Apple wanted to have this catchy name for the product, Mighty Mouse. It's alliterative, but it's also the name of an existing cartoon character. So they went to the rights holders, which I guess was Viacom and CBS, 
And they said, look, we want to make this computer mouse. We want to call it the Mighty Mouse. It's awesome. We'll buy the rights for the name from you so that, you know, obviously we're not competing with each other. So I'm sure they struck a pretty good deal. You know, they didn't have to pay them boatloads of money for the for the name. But they did actually have license for the name Mighty Mouse. And then they released it. And because of the way that trademark law works in the U.S., you trademark a name relative to certain classes of products. And so Mighty Mouse had been trademarked as the cartoon character and things, you know, like plush toys and vitamins that, you know, like Flintstones vitamins. He was Mighty Mouse vitamins. They had the trademark for all these different things, but CBS didn't actually own the trademark for Mighty Mouse with respect to computer mice. The very thing that Apple thought that they had purchased the rights from them. So some other companies like came out of the woodwork, of course, and they are like, we're going to sue Apple because we have, we can call computer mice Mighty Mouse. And Apple's like, ah, 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 we got the rights from CBS. So it wound up that those people were instead actually suing CBS. And apparently they successfully defended the lawsuits in some countries, but not all. And as this was all winding down, it looked like they didn't actually hold the rights. Apple said, okay, we're not going to call our our products Mighty Mouse anymore. Onto the design of the Mighty Mouse, what made it so mighty? Well, here's an interesting innovation from Apple. One of the things that was missing, again, especially if you're coming from the PC world, when you're using Apple Mice in the early 2000s is there was no scroll wheel. Whereas zero button design is literally just a hard plastic shell. It clicks, it drags, it moves around, but there's no scroll function. And people were very used to this on you know, basic comes-in-the-box generic Windows mice have a left button, a right button, and a scroll wheel in the middle. And you move it up and down, and you can scroll pages without having to go over and manipulate the on-screen controls. Very handy. So Apple said, well, we're not just going to cave and put a scroll wheel in our beautiful device. Instead, we're going to one-up the scroll wheel when when we do this. We're going to do it right. And so they put this little, little scroll ball, which is much smaller than a traditional scroll wheel, but in the same position, right in the top center of the mouse. And it was this little, little rubberized nipple thing <laughs> um, that did scrolling in all directions. So yes, you could scroll up and down, but you could also scroll side to side. And this was, of course, the big advantage of, of the Mighty Mouse. The big disadvantage of the little scroll, scroll ball thing, I don't even know what the official name was. I think maybe scroll ball might have been the official name. <laughs> we'll look that up for follow-up next time. <laughs> the problem with it was, remember what we said about cleaning out the mouse balls on the old mice where they would they would accumulate stuff and then they wouldn't work properly. And that they still at least had a feature where the ball could be removed to accommodate for cleaning. Right. Same deal with the Mighty Mouse, especially because this thing was on top and your grubby hands were all over it all the time. And it would accumulate stuff, just enough stuff that it wouldn't work. And there was basically no recourse. I mean, you could kind of like swab at it and try to move it around with like rubbing alcohol or something. But it, like once that thing gummed up, it was kind of never coming back. And I know that 
my parents had an iMac that had that came with the Mighty Mouse. And in the end of its life, you know, it took three, four years, but there there came a point where it was basically just like, that doesn't work anymore. And so a feature of the operating system, a feature that you'd use every single day, every time you sat down at the computer, was basically just gone with this little physical reminder of <laughs> the fact that you couldn't use it anymore. Um, other than that, though, it was still the zero-button design, except there was a lot more going on. So despite there being no indication of a left and right mouse button, this mouse, the Mighty Mouse, was going for the full full PC experience uh, where it would actually detect whether you had one or two fingers on the mouse. So it would default to left-click. So if you rested your hand on it just normally and just mashed it down, you would get an ordinary click. And you had to be very kind of careful, like raise up your index finger if you're right-handed and only press with that middle finger to get a right click. But it more or less worked, and it, you know, it added in this functionality that was necessary, expected, part of the operating system uh, in OS X at this point, without sacrificing the purity of the design. They also did, as you alluded to, Brian, they also did something with those little half moons at the bottom. They turned them into buttons that they didn't move. They didn't actually physically move, but they were pressure sensitive. And if you squeezed them together, it was an additional mouse function. It was like your third click. And I think by default, it like, didn't it like activate dashboard? Yeah, I was going to say it's either expose or dashboard. It was the kind of thing that you could never do when you wanted to and always did when you didn't. Uh, And the very best thing to do with that feature is to turn it off completely. Uh, Again, if you were ever dragging and needed to pick up the mouse, just... (laughs) Forget it with the Mighty Mouse, you're sunk. So the Mighty Mouse, uh, it was released as a wired and a wireless version. And as Ed said, eventually stopped being labeled the Mighty Mouse. Uh, I think it went to just the Apple Mouse. Oh, yeah, there might have been a year or so when it was just, yeah, an Apple wireless mouse or something like that. Uh, Because in 2009, well after Apple has released the iPhone and they're starting to really understand touch-sensitive materials and surfaces, we have uh, the first release of the mouse that Apple is still shipping today, the Magic Mouse. This is the design that you're familiar with today that is uncharitably called, been called the sushi design. I guess technically like a piece of nigiri. <laughs> like it's got, you know, it's just like a lovely, lovely, smooth piece of fish. Um, it's definitely the lowest profile mouse that Apple has ever created. And we were talking about, you know, those early boxy models and like whether they would give people RSI or things like that. I have found actually that the magic mouse is one of the worst for my hand just because of how low you are to the table and how you have to kind of constantly grip at it from the sides and always have like one finger hanging off. Um, I will find that sometimes if I've been overusing the magic mouse that, that I get kind of weird, weird hand cramps, not like full on RSI, but it's it's not my favorite Apple mouse, but it's one of the longest enduring now, going seven years plus. The entire surface now is this kind of smart surface that they uh, started to get towards in, with the Mighty Mouse. Um, so it can kind of 
Intuit whether you want to do a left click or a right click. And instead of having a little ball for scrolling, you can scroll with two fingers on the entire surface of the mouse. I think you can even use it for like pinching and zooming. There's no pinch to zoom. I wish there was pinch to zoom on on the Magic Mouse. It seems like you should be able to because it's just like a trackpad, right? Except it's not. It's like trackpad minus one because you can do single finger scrolling in the middle of the mouse. And you can do um, two finger left and right swipes for spaces or desktops now. Whereas if you're using a trackpad, that's two fingers up and down or side to side to scroll and three finger swipes to change spaces. So like it's, it's a little bit hard to switch back and forward between the two. And I guess it's a recognition of the fact that it's a fairly small touch surface and they don't want you doing like five finger multi-touch gestures on it, even though it is essentially a multi-touch surface, kind of the same way that like there's the five finger and four-finger multi-touch, uh, multitasking gestures on the iPad, but they don't let you do them on the phone. I think it's kind, kind of similar. Um, one of the other things that uh, is part of this design is that as it got lower profile, uh, it still uses that same kind of method where basically the whole body rocks forward and backwards and you get a physical click. Um, but the the little squeezers on the side are are entirely gone. There's no room for them, and nobody liked them anyway. Uh, one quick thing um, about ergonomics and potentially like causing RSI. Uh, we've talked about with the the puck mouse that companies kind of jumped on it, how bad it was with uh, the ability to sell like some $10 pieces of plastic to kind of extend the puck mouse into a more traditional shape. With the magic mouse that does sit so low that it could cause some wrist strain, there are companies that will sell you a lump of foam that you affix to the lower half of the magic mouse just so that it like kind of rests higher and you can rest your palm on it. Uh, not only is this, I think, even more ridiculous uh, than the than the eye catch plastic shell, this also sits on this this sensor your surface, so it reduces the the navigable area for scrolling and swiping by half just to put a piece of foam that you spent money on um, <laughs> to make it more ergonomic. And uh, I'll put a link to this in our show notes as well. And then getting into more about the the like the tangibles and intangibles of the Magic Mouse design, it has been uh, revised once in 2015. And uh, on the surface, it doesn't look like a lot changed, but one of the big changes is that it went from being powered by AA batteries, whether they were single-use or rechargeable in their own right, to just being a rechargeable device with a non-removable battery that charges over lightning. Not without some controversy, though, <laughs> because Apple decided to put the, the charging port on the bottom of the mouse. And if you've been paying attention to Apple over the past year and a half or so, you'll know that that people said that this meant that Apple had, you know, completely lost their way and knew nothing and was therefore doomed. And it's funny that that came out, um, that that criticism came out because Apple must have worked with Stephen Levy because when these new accessories were launched, there was a nice long article in his magazine back channel about uh, the design process that went into all of these things. And there's some crazy like Johnny Ive level sweating the details about things like they changed the material that the little groove feet on the bottom was was made out of because it was too loud. 
The first Magic Mouse was too loud when it was sliding across your desk. And things like, how much should it weigh? Where is the weight balance? One thing I know is that those rails along the bottom, because they're designed to not go on traditional mouse pads anymore, but to glide across any kind of surface, uh, those things, boy, they pick up whatever that same crud that got up in the bottom of your old rollerball mouse just the same. And it's a cleaning process about once a month. Yeah. So for all of those design considerations... Uh, they still thought that the best place to put the lightning connector was perpendicular to the bottom surface. So that is Apple's most modern mouse today, but it's not Apple's most advanced and most modern pointing device because the most recent addition to the Apple family of pointing devices is a trackpad, not a mouse. So let's wind back the clock quickly and go back through the history of how Apple used trackpads. And one thing that I I always referred to them as trackpads, is that more or less standard for you too, Brian? Yeah. Okay, because I looked this up on Wikipedia, which is never wrong, and it redirects you to touchpad. (laughs) Um, But it says that people call them all kinds of different things. Again, this is an area, though, that I thought of for a long time as Apple being totally a pioneer and leader in. Where if, you know, in the late 90s, if you had a Windows laptop, it was going to have a trackball somewhere, you know, in the below the keyboard. Then you got into like the ThinkPad era where they're like, oh, use the, what's the, what's the name of the thing? I don't know. I always call it the pencil eraser. Yeah, it's like a little pencil eraser that sits between the, between the keys. <laughs> um, use that thing um, <laughs> until you try to play a game with it and then you will die. Yeah. Um, but Apple laptops started off with trackballs, started with that Mac portable that had the big full size trackball in it quickly went to small size ones that where it was literally just the mouse inverted, uh, with, you know, something resembling a mouse ball that you manipulated directly, but really pretty quickly, as quickly as they could, Apple went to the sleeker technology of using trackpads and they started off small. I mean, I'm I'm picking up my my magic trackpad and trying to envision by percent like how big perhaps the first Apple laptop trackpad was in comparison. I would say I would say it's about a ninth. About ten percent, because it's about a third in each dimension. Uh it would be how big you know, some of the original trackpads would be, but yeah, you know, they were expensive technology. And Again, going back the same way that I did with with mice, trackpads don't go back nearly as long. Uh, one of the first available touchpads, touchpads, oh yes, this is from Wikipedia, <laughs> was made by a company called Cirque, and it was called the Glide Point, and they were releasing it as a standalone product. And in also in 1994, Apple licensed the technology for them uh, for the Glide Point and built those directly into the PowerBook 500 series. So this was a landmark feature of the PowerBook 500 series uh, and was using the best technology available for the time. And then, we again, that's 1994, and more or less the technology in Apple's notebook trackpads didn't really improve. And we were actually, we were talking about portability and we talked about the PowerBook, the 12-inch PowerBook G4 as a kind of a, a hallmark of Apple portability. When I was going back and looking at it, 
that the 12-inch PowerBook G4's trackpad was tiny, tiny, tiny. Oh, yeah. Uh, so really, um, from the, the first trackpad in an Apple PowerBook in May 1994, really all the way up through and to the Intel transition, trackpads more or less stayed the same technology, the same feel, and the same size. Yeah, the only transition that I can think of is that the original trackpads had almost like a um, like a rough, almost a little sandpapery surface to them, and then eventually trackpads became smoother. Even Apple's trackpads, like in the PowerBook G4s, they weren't into the current era where everything is glass, similar to like an iPhone or an iPad screen, but they moved to a smoother plastic material. And I remember that if you had one of those, like a G3 or G4 era PowerBook and really used it heavily for a long time, especially without an external pointing device, uh, you could like wear down through the layers of the trackpad and it became visible. So, I mean, they were an integral part of using the machine, but they were not of the highest quality. Yeah. I remember I had a third party, uh, like system preference pane that would, uh, it, it would give you the ability to scroll on the trackpad, but it hadn't figured out that like two fingers was probably the, the better way to do it. So instead it would, uh, remap all the like sensors on the right edge to, and, and the bottom edge to be up and down and left and right scrolling respectively. And since I used that notebook pretty consistently for three years, there was just like a real shiny edge <laughs> to those sides. And that was and it, that was standard in the Windows world too. And there would be laptops that were even manufactured with like printed areas on on the trackpad that would make them, you know, as as Apple was finally getting to the point where they had a surface that could be used for scrolling anywhere on the surface and making them bigger and bigger and bigger, as as big as they could fit in the case design. There were these other manufacturers that were basically cannibalizing what small area they had for all these special functions that may or may not work the way that you wanted them to, and it was kind of a big mess. Because, of course, you know, they were you know, they were adding this extra layer on top of the hardware. It was not like you know, the basic USB mouse that you plug into any computer and it just goes, aha, I see it has a button. It has, it has tracking. Like they were adding these extra pieces of functionality, like your, you know, probably hacksy <laughs> system preference pane. The first time that I can recall the trackpads getting bigger and becoming smarter was uh, around like the first MacBooks and MacBook Pros. Yeah, it was as they transitioned that branding and the way that the cases were designed. And the original MacBooks or the the, the white plastic MacBooks and the, the black book as well had a different type of trackpad than the MacBook Pros. Um, the MacBook had that more tacky feel to it and the MacBook Pro retained more of the, the smooth feel. So they had slightly different technology but they offered the same features and they had the first two finger multi-touch. So not full on multi-touch, but they could detect two fingers for those left click and scroll actions or not a left click, a right click. <laughs> See, I really don't come from the windows yeah. world. <laughs> so you could do a right click by resting two fingers on the trackpad and then clicking the physical button, which still remained below it. One button design, right? So the trackpads had gotten 
You know, they had gone from trackball, which had some really interesting shaped buttons to kind of curve around the ball, mm -hmm. to the trackpad, which would then have a single button at the bottom, not at the top, like a mouse, um, designed for your thumb to use. And so you could rest two fingers and then click with a third finger, the thumb, and you could get that contextual menu, right-click action, and you could scroll with two fingers. And uh, in the what the the classic direction or what's it called now like legacy scrolling I've not not natural not yeah unnatural you're unnatural it was the way at the time though and one of the things that I kind of lamented with these was that it removed one of my favorite tricks with the older style of trackpads the way that they worked was kind of like those laser early laser mice is they were basically just they were looking for where the finger was, and it does it by detecting you know, electrical fields through the through the trackpad. And then it would just look for change over time, right? And there was this trick that you could do where you would like lightly tap your two fing two fingers, roll down the first one, then the second one, then lift up the first one, then lift up the second one, and it would see that as oh, you were your finger was here, and then it was there because it thought it was just one finger. And you could like teleport the mouse cursor across the screen in just this single very quick tap gesture. But then when multi-touch came into play, it's like, aha, I see you. You have two fingers on the trackpad. And so you couldn't do it anymore. Um, and apparently I was not the only person to notice this because I found a Macworld article that uh, mentioned it as a, as a top tip. <laughs> as I mentioned, it also had this, this behavior of getting the, the right click uh, which is essentially a three-finger gesture, uh, resting your fingers down, two of them, and then clicking with the third finger. Through years and years and years of use, I am so used to this that I still do it on like on this very uh, magic trackpad that I have here on my desk. And here's the funny thing: still works. Um, they've you know they've basically built it into the firmware or software that runs these more modern multi-touch devices to make it so that they emulate these old kind of hacks on top of physical buttons uh, that were present in the earlier trackpads. And then in 2008, when Apple kind of caught up to their, their lasting design for laptops, the unibody, the aluminum unibody, they upgraded their trackpads to mostly what we're familiar with today, the glass uh, surface that um, doesn't have its own discrete button. The entire surface is a button. It's also a much larger trackpad area, and uh, it has pretty true multi-touch. You can do three-finger swipes, four-finger swipes. You can do, like, rotate your photos the same way you rotate uh, photos on an iPhone. Same with pinch-to-zoom. And uh, in most laptop reviews, certainly those of... Windows and Chromebook machines, I think these are still the trackpads that are the gold standard that other machines are still trying to catch up to. Yeah, and the the zero button trackpad design, I remember it creating a little bit of a stir when it was introduced. People were like, wait, they saw the pictures of it. They're like, wait, how do I click it? Um, unlike the first zero button mouse, the pro mouse, everyone saw it and they're like, well, it appears to have no buttons, but I know how mice work. I'm going to push on the front and assume that it's going to do what I want to do. Well, that was exactly the same way as the trackpad design was. Apple's like, no, 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 just use it like a trackpad. Just 
just pretend, just push where you think you ought to push, which is at the bottom of the trackpad where there used to be button and now there's additional trackpad space and it'll work because it's hinged at the top edge. And so it pushes down at the bottom as if there is a button there with a physical click. And, uh, it took some getting used to, but that was, uh, that was how trackpads worked for several years until we got to the force touch and haptic technology that was introduced last year with the MacBook Pro, the MacBook One, and eventually the standalone Magic Trackpad 2. And these are the ones that are a magic trick <laughs> because there's no hinge anymore. Um, one of the other things that Apple released was the, the Magic Trackpad, the standalone trackpad. Uh, that's the aluminum one with the like batteries. The battery tube battery tube in the back, which actually makes for the hinge design. Um, there, the hinge is kind of reversed. It's um, the feet actually click. Uh, the front feet actually depress down. And the way that that worked is just like the laptop ones where it's hinged at the bottom. You have more leverage at the bottom of the trackpad. The thing with the, <laughs> the magic trick of the force touch trackpads is you get used to it and you're like, this is just working the way it's supposed to. Every once in a while, I just turn it off and push on it and go, that's the magic trick. That part actually is like that you can, you can break it by removing the power from it and then you can turn it back on and it works again. But the thing here is they're changing the way that they want you to use these because you can click and drag anywhere with the same amount of pressure anywhere on the trackpad, which means that you can click in the top corner with just the same force as the bottom, and they expect you to do dragging by pushing and holding down with one finger, as opposed to what we were used to on the old PowerBook or uh, MacBook trackpads where you jam your finger thumb down on the button. This was the part that gave me RSI. You jam your thumb down on the button and then you waggle your index finger around as much as needed to com complete the drag. And... I would always do this quite badly where I would actually put my thumb, like I would push down with the side of my thumb as opposed to the pad of my thumb. And this like, this puts pressure on the joints of your thumb in ways that were never encountered in nature. <laughs> um, I would get into big trouble with that, um, with those internal trackpads. And now that's gone. Um, unless I go back uh, to my parents' house where they have an iMac with a uh, original magic trackpad because they were like, oh, yeah, we get that, you know, Apple is, they're kind of moving this way. They think that trackpads are going to be really even the desktop input method of choice. It's got the gestures. It's cool. We're going to we're gonna go with that in the box instead of the, uh, they came with their Retina 5K iMac. Um, it was their original Magic trackpad. And I go and then I try to do one finger drags on it. And it, it's, it's like it's broken. <laughs> you know, we, we feel like this is the way that things are going. So we've gone from the one button very obvious designs to the no button designs to the haptic, like it's like negative one button design. I don't know. Um, and the rumor at this point, and we had rumors in our keyboard episode a couple of years ago, we'll check on these uh, in another couple of years. The rumor right now is that the iPhone seven is coming out in the fall and that the home button is actually going to become one of these magic haptic buttons that if your phone is off and you push it, it does nothing and it's broken. And then when you turn it on, it'll do a nice little, haptic buzz and trick your brain into thinking that you're pushing a button. So we shall see. So that covers all of Apple's input devices for pointing, cursor moving, 
But of course, there are some third-party options. There have always been third-party options. And we're just going to quickly go through a little grab bag of uh, some of the fun ones that we remember or ones that we've used in the past. Uh, some of these are good. Some of these are bad. And we'll round out with what we're we're still using today. <laughs> uh, so one that I remember, you know, I said at the top of the show, basically, that the trackball long predated the mouse as an input device. And there were wars, especially when we're talking about RSI, there were wars between people of which is better to use. You know, a trackball, it just sits on your desk and you don't have to pick it up and move it around and that fancy dragging stuff. It's better for your RSI, for ergonomics. And one of the ones that I remember always seeing in Mac catalogs in the early 90s, and the reason that I remember it is the name. It was the Kensington Turbo Mouse. And the reason that it was interesting is because it was a trackball and they called it a mouse. They just refused to hear anything else. It was like, this is not only a mouse, it's better than a mouse. It's the Turbo Mouse. And it was, um, I presume they were ADB for a long time. They now make USB versions and wireless versions. Kensington is still, of course, in business and making making these kind of products. And uh, one of the things was they had multiple buttons where you could have, I think, the Turbo Mouse even had like three or four buttons that were programmable, kind of like around the ball. Yeah, so they were they were in the four corners of the of the big trackball enclosure, and uh, I just distinctly remember that as being. It's like I don't know if I would ever like that, but it seems like such a pro tool. Uh, something that I used back in the ADB era that was definitely not a pro tool. <laughs> uh, this, this is a this is a weird one, uh, but I I remembered this is I had this device called the Joyport ADB. It was made by a company called Kernel, which no longer exists, but I hope that they got uh, some good money when they went out of business by selling their domain name, which was kernel.com. Kernel, like a kernel of corn or a kernel that runs your operating system. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the, the Joyport was a hot mess of an adapter for video game controllers that then... (laughs) I'll put a picture in the show notes. It supported, I think, four different types of uh, of different video game controllers. So there's like a PC serial port, a Sega Genesis controller port, a PlayStation and a Nintendo 64 port. And they were just like stuck on the front of this box in any config, like whatever, like however the internal wiring worked, like that's that's just how they made it and how they shipped it. And we talked about design uh, in the way Johnny Ive looked at this, he would like spontaneously break out in a rash. It's the opposite of design. <laughs> but I remember getting one of these things at the end of the ADB era, so I only used it for a couple of years, and plugging a Nintendo 64 controller into it. And it came with this really robust software, which was called Input Sprocket, which basically lets you map any of the pinouts, any of the input from these different video game controllers to controls on your machine and it was like app specific so you could tailor it for every different game that you might want to play i remember playing through some ambrosia games with it i think it was uh your easel's wand uh I, I had played through most of that game with uh with the n64 controller and then when i had it plugged in uh and already in my hands it's like well i could maybe use this for other things and you could uh map the nintendo 64 analog stick to the mouse movement which 
know, it's just a joystick. And it was actually fairly functional. I remember there was uh, the people who made virtual PC, might have been Connectix, also had a commercially available and commercially sold PlayStation 1 emulator software for the Mac. I think it was Virtual Game Station. Oh, yeah. It was like slow as molasses, wasn't it? It was terrible, but our, our family definitely bought it. Oh, because it was cheaper than the PS1 itself, right? Oh, absolutely. And we could get like bargain bin PlayStation games. And I remember that it was, it came down to either should we buy this, the Joyport, and a like first party PlayStation controller, or someone like Logitech or Mac Alley or someone made a knockoff. PlayStation DualShock controller that was, of course, in translucent Bondi blue. And uh, and we bought one of those. We bought Virtual Game Station. They were bad. They were really bad. I mean, USB game controllers have come a long way since then. Yeah. But the, yeah, the whole experience was terrible. But I remember our like me and my brothers all pooled our money like, this way we're going to have a PlayStation for like way cheaper than a PlayStation. Oh, man. Tell me about your next uh, terrible mouse as well. <laughs> yeah, uh, I had not thought about this since using it in college uh, until the time came to fill out this part of our outline. But um, in college, I briefly used this mouse called uh, from a company called Mac Mice Camel Cased, and it was the first wireless mouse they released. And so it was the mouse BT, uh, like kind of retroactive, retroactively named BT One. And uh, as I was going back and revisiting all the stuff <laughs> that this company got itself involved with, um, it struck me that the company and its kind of sister companies were basically trying to be what 12 South is today. Uh, 12 South being, of course, a much beloved, well-respected company that only makes uh, very well-made accessories for Apple products. And so this Mac Mice company was trying to get out there and make mice that were like designed to complement your Mac and be just a little bit better than the Apple mice that were bundled with it. Uh, so this, their first mouse, the mouse that I bought uh, is taking the, the Apple pro mouse, the apology mouse we talked about, but give it two discrete buttons and a scroll wheel. This really looks like someone saw the Apple pro mouse and then tried to make a version of it that they could sell with a windows PC. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not very well made. It's not very well designed, but it does pull off the same aesthetic. And when they came out with a Bluetooth version, I was like, Oh, this is the coolest thing in the world. This was before the mighty mouse. I need to be clear. This was before there was a first party solution to have native uh, left and right clicks and scrolling. Uh, so I bought it. And uh, it ran on AA batteries and it was like, it was fine. It was okay. But it, I think it broke pretty quickly at which point I went online to <laughs> look for like, oh, is anyone else having trouble with this mouse? And it turns out that there is like kind of a mastermind behind the Mac mice company. He had an iPod centric company called DV forge and he had a furniture company called Mac table. And they were all just like, getting stuff right off the assembly line from some Chinese factory, putting a lot of marketing muscle behind it and some like well-designed packaging and selling it for high margins. Uh, and then like kind of disappearing and scamming people. Uh, so I don't need to go into this here, uh, but we'll put a link to a collection of emails about this man's schemes, which I guess I, I fell for at one point uh, in, our, in our show notes. 
I also had a mouse at that time that was very much trying to tie into the, uh, you know, the titanium and white plastic aesthetic of like the PowerBook G4s. And the mouse that I took to college, I was shocked that I was able to find this again. It was, I actually, I was at my parents' house uh, recently and I opened up like a desk drawer in my old bedroom and this thing was in there and I was like, oh, um, because it did not wear well, like all the yet plastic turned yellow and it had all this wear, like all of the silver bits that were supposed to match the power book, like they had all flaked off through four years of intense use. This device was the Kensington Studio Mouse, and it was its kind of a funny design. It looks like it has a big exclamation point in the middle of it. Again, this is before the, I guess before the Mighty Mouse, certainly before the Magic Mouse. This mouse had a touch-sensitive scroll area, and it was this single little strip where there would be a scroll wheel ordinarily. There were left and right buttons on either side and then a middle mouse button underneath. This was super cool because I went and took like a Maya course in uh, like on the side, like a little mini course in college. And I'm like, I've got the three button mouse. I've got the center button. All of you who are pushing modifier keys, too bad. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This was not the world's greatest mouse, but uh, but it got me through college and uh, plugged in via USB and kind of matched my my power book. My current. Uh, pointing setup is I've got the uh, I've got the Magic Trackpad 2 here at home with my iMac which I love for 90% of things uh, I've got a Magic Mouse 1 on my desk at work but then my current third party mouse is the Logitech Ultra Thin Touch Mouse and they still sell these and I love this little thing it is tiny yeah, it looks really cool. <laughs> Again, like relative to the size of the of the trackpad, it's like maybe a sixth of the size. It's only a couple inches tall, like one and a half inches wide. Super tiny, charges on the bottom just like the Magic Mouse 2. So I was totally used to this. Um and it's it's got a multi-touch surface. And it has two Bluetooth radios, so you can switch it between two devices. So I have it for my work computer, my home computer. And uh, it's so tiny that, like, it lives in my backpack in a little inside pocket all the time. And I've used it, like, for presentations before. And then, like, I'll stick it in my back pocket and forget that it's there, like, all day. Like, that's how tiny it is. Um, and it's, uh, it's a good little device. Uh, if you need a travel mouse, I I definitely suggest that one. Yeah, I might pick it up. Uh I might pick it up actually because <laughs> the mouse that I still use, which is really like not all the time. I'm usually on my laptop as a laptop. Uh, but if I'm at my desk and everything is plugged in, I have the, like the very lowest level wired optical mouse that Microsoft makes. Oh no. Oh no, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> we mentioned them before about how they were like surprisingly a very dedicated mouse company and I, they still are, but it's, they're more known for their like, what are they called? Like arc mice or something um, that are like very like high end. Yeah. But this is their basic one. This is the one that I said that you could basically, I mean, I, we've got a link here. I, I guess it's 1495 direct from Microsoft, but this was the, what I was thinking about. You could get a mouse for $5. Oh, this is definitely like a $1 mouse. Uh, I remember where I got it. I, um, it is when I was still working at Twitter and it was the first time I was working there where the company moved buildings. 
And I had a, like, it must've been a wired Apple mighty mouse, who knows what name it was, but it got lost in the move. And uh, so I just like left my desk at lunch and walked to the Staples, like off of Market Street in San Francisco and bought the cheapest mouse I could find, which of course was the lowest level Microsoft USB mouse. I think I had one of these for a little bit too, when the Kensington Studio mouse finally broke and gave up the ghost. Um, I guess I was like towards the end of college and I was working at this like technology summer camp that was run on shoestring budget and no organization and we were having these kids hack apart all these Windows PCs, and they just had, like, a giant crate full of dollar Microsoft mice. And there were, like, 20 of them in there. And my mouse at home broke, so I just took one. Because <laughs> they were essentially free, and there was no inventory, and nobody ever missed it. So, uh, sorry, former employer, I took a dollar mouse from you. <laughs> it does everything a dollar mice needs to do, especially because my ne- I'm not playing games on my laptop. I'm really just, like, moving the cursor around on a desk. And it's that plug and play promise that, you know, a basic USB mouse you can plug into any Mac and it will understand it. That was, you know, that was the thing that was promised with the iMac and everyone's like, everyone's hung up on the design going, really? Are things just going to, you know, has anyone ever made anything with USB before? This is the only mouse I see and it's garbage. Um, But today, you know, well, maybe we've got another couple years still of those USB type A connectors then you'll need a dongle uh, or, or some new dollar mice. But uh, for now, pretty much, you know, any old mouse will do. So pick your favorite. I also use this mouse whenever I need to fire up the old iBook G3 that I use to uh, research and test old classic Mac software for uh, for this show. And the mouse works perfectly. It just works there, too. Awesome. <laughs> all right. So I think that's a uh, grand tour of all of our pointing devices. If you have a favorite pointing device, Apple or non-Apple, please let us know. Or if you have horror stories of clearing out your mouse rollers or anything else involving moving the cursor around your screen, you can get in touch with us the usual ways. Uh, There's a contact form on our website, simplebeep.com. And of course, you can find us on Twitter. The show Twitter is at simple underscore beep. You can also find us personally on Twitter. I'm at bsuto, B-S-U-T-O. And I'm at ecormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.